So what better way than to talk to millionaires and unveil their portfolios and get into the details of their asset allocation and their stories and why they do what they do. And I think after, I don't know, we've done almost 300 of these now, got all sorts of data mashed up. Welcome to the Action Academy Podcast. Stand back while I celebrate freedom. The show where we help you achieve financial independence with the mindsets, methods, and actionable steps from guests who've already earned their freedom. The flags of freedom fly. Choose to do what you want. What you want. With who you want. With who you want. When you want. When you want. With another episode today. Now, here's your host, Brian Lubin. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Action Academy Podcast, the show that helps you get rich, happy, successful, and free with a capital F in your life and business. Today's episode is a very cool conversation between two podcast hosts that spend each and every waking hour every day interviewing millionaires for their podcast. And that would be between me and none other than the podcast host of Millionaires Unveiled, Jace Mattinson. Jace has ran Millionaires Unveiled for six years now, and he has a little bit of a different demographic for who he brings on the show. His millionaires are more Dave Ramsey style, self-made. So I thought it'd be a pretty cool conversation to have the entrepreneurial spin that I do with our show and our guests and him to have his perspective with his more middle-class millionaires, basically millionaire next door. So over the next 30 minutes, Jason and I compile our top takeaways and commonalities slash similarities that we see across all of the millionaire show guests that him and I have both combined, which is over a thousand millionaires. So today's episode is chock full of tips and actionable advice for you to implement in your wealth building journeys today. So I wanted to give a quick heads up when we swapped over to Zoom to do this interview, the webcam accidentally picked up my audio as opposed to my microphone. So during this interview, my audio is going to be a bit off. I wanted to apologize in advance for that. And it will be back to normal in the next episode. So sit tight and I hope you enjoy. Jace Mattinson. Hey, buddy. (laughs) How's it going? Man, it is going finally. You and I are doomed to technical difficulties on our podcast. Man. <laughs> Tell me about it, man. I'm I'm glad that we got through it though. Yeah, we're finally on the other side of it. So for people listening, Jace has a great show called Millionaires Unveiled. And this is where he goes and interviews. And I was a guest on his show recently, and he goes and just dives really deep and tactically into the balance sheets and the stories, especially the backstories of millionaires. So you and I are kindred spirits in the fact that we are basically every single day talking to awesome people. So I'd like to begin with what are some of your top takeaways? Like what are some of the recurring themes that you've seen around your show guests over and over again? Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me on your podcast. You've got a tremendous audience and a tremendous brand that you're building and have built so far. Yeah, crazy thing is we started this thing, I don't know, six years ago or something. And it was a little bit of a, hey, let's try to understand how millionaires invest. All we had insight into was what our dads had done. This is me and my co-host who has since left the show for various reasons. But at any rate, we didn't really know. And so what better way than to talk to millionaires and unveil their portfolios and get into the details of their asset allocation and their stories and why they do what they do. And I think after, I don't know, we've done almost 300 of these now, got all sorts of data mashed up. The interesting things are one, it can be done in multiple different ways, multiple different facets. 
Typically, you have a lot of those two type people that are probably going to be in between one, five, maybe some got to 10 million. Your small business owners are going to be 5 million to probably 30 or 40 on average. And then those that have scaled beyond that typically have built a pretty sizable and scalable business or have massive real estate portfolios. So those are the chunks from a net worth standpoint. But bottom line is most of our millionaires on the show are 10 million, 5 million and under. And a lot of them are young too. We've got a lot in their 30s and 40s, some in their 20s. And I think the most interesting thing that, that we've discovered is there's just not one way to do it. And so figuring out what works for you and being able to stick to that plan for a long time. And even if you start late, we've got people that didn't really start till their 50s and they still made it there. It just takes, I would say it takes about five to 10 years of planned consistency with a good income that, that has a factor. If you don't have a super high income, we got people on that have only made 40 to 50 grand or have the average you know, their whole career salary of what we have in America. And it's just taken them a little longer, 20 years to get there, but they can still do it. Yeah. And that's been the recurring theme that I've seen. So my, my show guess is normally between like kind of the five to 50 million range. So I'm in the same sweet spot. Ours are a bit more, I think you, you have a bit more diversity with your different types of guests that you bring on with what they do. And that kind of reinforces the idea that there's a million ways to make a million dollars. Yep. So there is no one size fits all. It's just really how do you deliver value to the market and how do you have assets that appreciate over time? Would that preferably get paid off like the debt service gets paid off by somebody else? That's kind of the recurring theme. So I'm curious when it comes to hit on the time horizon that you just spoke about, were there any recurring themes that you've seen? And then I'll bring up some that I've seen on the time horizon, like the people that have done it the fastest, what do they do differently than the people that did it in 10 years or 20 years? Those that have done it fastest have either had outsized incomes that they've either generated through high paying jobs or businesses. We've had a lot given the bull market that we've recently had on real estate where people had quite, they started investing, let's say in 2010, from a timing standpoint, that was just impeccable. And especially if they were in certain markets where they were able to take advantage of that. And some of that's luck, some of that's skill, some of that's just market conditions, just is what it is. There's no one thing to point to with that. The other thing that's, I think, probably interesting is most of these millionaires that we have on significantly live below their means. They are, for that first chunk to lifestyle inflation in that first decade, as long as you, you don't let that creep in, it's pretty, I feel like it's not easy to get there, but if you just plow some stuff away and you, a decade of a grind, call it, you should get there. Even if you're in a W-2, you know, most people have promotions and make decent money, but living on less than you make, that's your biggest kind of wealth building tool is what that Delta becomes between what you spend and what your assets are building or what your income can be to buy assets. Yeah. That's why I always like when it comes to your kind of like freedom formula, I don't think that people should focus as much on the number, like a fixed number, as opposed to a percentage, right? Yeah. So it's like my kind of target has always been 50%, no matter, because I want my lifestyle to increase. For sure. And I think that's something that the financial independence community misses. Um, I don't want to drive a Camry at $10 million. I just don't. Like At that point, if I want to get a Tesla, I want to get a Tesla. 
But it's all just a matter of what percentage are you bringing home and what percentage are you keeping? That's the entire game. That's what it's always been. That's what it's always going to be, which further validates your point about the outsized incomes. Like they're, if they're saving only 20% of their income, like that's still 20,000 of a hundred, right? Yeah. So it goes back to that. So I think if you have a 50% savings rate, then you will be able to have a very comfortable degree of freedom throughout your entire life. Now, 50% of 10 million looks a lot different than 50% of 100,000, but the same principles apply. Now, of the people that have been on your show, have a lot been entrepreneurs or have, what are the percentages of entrepreneur to maybe still in their W-2, but they just plowed away in their 401k and bought a couple of properties while they're still working that job? Yeah, I would say we probably have about 60 to 70% that I would consider more of a traditional W-2. And that doesn't necessarily mean corporate America, but maybe they're working in a small business or maybe they have some small ownership in a small business or whatever, what have you, or they're independent professionals, CPAs, attorneys, doctors, lawyers, whatever. And then the other 20 to 30% probably have some sort of business either on the side or it's their full their real estate state agent or self-employed to some extent with that. And then really kind of that 10%, I would say, are full-fledged business owners that have scalable businesses and teams, et cetera. Do the people that are still working the W-2s, do they have any aspiration that you interview to fully exit the W-2? Is that something that they're still in pursuit of? Or is this something to where they're just like the... I remember like my VP, like highly compensated guy he had no aspirations to do his own thing. It's not for everyone. Like He yeah, wanted to yeah. just ride it out, add his 401k, have his preferred options from the company, and ha- live in a nice house, live a nice quality of life. Is that more so what you're running into? I would say those that are in like that 45 plus bracket are mm-hmm. definitely in that boat where they are comfortable in their career. I just had a guy on and he's been in kind of the food space his whole career. Makes great money. Great guy. He's worth probably seven to $8 million now. He's probably going to ride that out for another five or 10 years and then and retire. I mean, he's to some degrees more well off than several of our owners that yeah. are still grinding away. If they're in their 30s, I, I think there's a little bit of an inkling for some of those people that are maybe still trying to figure out, do I continue on a corporate career path or maybe do I do something more entrepreneurial? Yeah, that's an interesting takeaway. Are you familiar with the Morgan Housel? Yeah. So Morgan, I'm emailing back and forth with Morgan. I want him to come on the show so badly. So hopefully this will turn into something. But Morgan, he has this book, Psychology of Money. And in the book, he talks about what decade you're born in and what time frame you're born in directly impacts your entrepreneurial leanings. So just for, from the sake of being born when you were born and going and maturing when you matured, will completely dictate how you view money and how you view wealth building throughout your entire life. So I feel like mm-hmm. our generation is the, we all were around like when the internet was first starting out, we were all around before social media and then social media hit, the internet hit and we saw what it created. We saw 2008 happen and then we saw what happened afterwards. So it's like, we all kind of swing for the fences, I feel. But it's like people that matured in the 90s and the 80s They view things completely differently. Like they want to have that stable income, that stable life. That was before entrepreneurship was sexy. Do you Mm -hmm. agree with that or do you have any thoughts to add to that? Yeah, no, I think that's somewhat true. And between the internet and just the democratization of of technology in general, it could be 
a corporate, for example, I had this guy on and I can't remember, he was working at some tech company, but he was driving for Uber every day because where he lived, people were always going to the airport and he drove by the airport. So his commute, he basically had this other side business that was generating quite a bit of money as he was going to his like regular, that just didn't exist 20 years ago, 30 years ago for somebody to, oh, hey, I'm going to make some extra money real quick on my commute back and forth to work because I go by the airport and everybody out of my neighborhood needs to go to the airport all the time. Why not do it? Or writing a blog or making a writing podcast. A or pod- yeah. yeah, all these things. They just didn't exist to even have second, third incomes or things that could turn into businesses, et cetera. Yeah, it's crazy to think in context. Like We have more information available to us in our pockets, like in our phone, than the president of the United States had in the 1990s. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah, it's wild. So what are your thoughts on it? What is the ultimate? What do you think is the right path? I know you're very entrepreneurial yourself, but it's just a fun little dissection of because you have a larger spread of people that you interview. I'm more so interviewing everyone on here is more so hard charging. They've earned their freedom. They're not in the corporate position. They're doing their own business. We help people transition from corporate to the entrepreneur, from the entrepreneur to the entrepreneur. And so that's been our jam. But it's it's cool to get outside perspective from like the other people that are basically doing it the Dave Ramsey style. Yeah, I think it's funny you asked this question because I just posted on my LinkedIn this morning. I had somebody reach out on... I graduated college 10 years ago. They wanted to know what are the 10 lessons and thoughts and whatnot that I had for new graduating the new graduating class right after I hit my 10 year mark. And one of the things that that I posted about was developing a self-awareness and understanding kind of your strengths, your weaknesses, and being able to capitalize on those. Because at the end of the day, you've got to love what you do. You're going to be more successful when you love what you do. And you're going to be able to do it longer and have the stamina to do it longer. And those are key things that I think really make people successful, whether it's trying to climb the corporate ladder or it's building a business or whatever, like you have to have a level of commitment, stamina to do things longer. And in some cases better than maybe somebody else. It's a competitive world. It's an abundant world. There's plenty to go around, but the marketplace largely doesn't really reward half a effort in a way. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think developing that self-awareness and understanding like who you are and what your makeup is. And that doesn't necessarily, it can change, but I think that's critical to being able to figure out your path. Yeah. I just pulled up your LinkedIn post 10 years ago, graduated from college. I was asked to share the 10 most important lessons, key takeaways. All right, cool. Mary will <laughs> like that one. That's oh, yeah, your number, number one. one, man. Mary will just speak a little bit on that. Dude, I cannot. I cannot speak highly enough of my wife in this regard. Funny, I joke with her a little bit because when we were dating, I was she was living with her sister and I always joke with her about this story, but I was taking her home one night and I noticed we were walking up the stairs. I know she was wearing these shoes, Jimmy Choo. I never heard of Jimmy Choo. So she went to the bathroom, I Google these. I'm like, holy crap, $900? <laughs> oh my gosh. And this is a time in my life. I'm like, I, my bike was worth more than my car. I had a piece of junk, like Subaru Outback that I was driving. I was making, I don't know, 55 grand or something. And I was a, in corporate America for all intensive purposes at that time and was not really enjoying with, but at the same time, like I was falling in love with this girl. And I'm like, oh my gosh, $900. I don't know if this is going to work. 
Like, I don't know I mean, if this I can, may like, be out of my tax bracket. Yeah, I don't know exactly. if I got the credit score that you need from me, sweetheart. <laughs> exactly. That's what I was thinking. And I started that night. I went home and I was like, man, how can I afford like the life that she wants and all this stuff? Because I grew up in Eastern Washington. Like I'm like a farm guy in a way. I'm not a farmer, but like I, I grew up bailing hay and like I was a paper boy. Like I grew up on the outskirts of Eastern Washington. Yeah, It's not a small town, but that's just in my blood a little bit. My dad was like, my parents were cut from that grain. So I was like, man, I don't know, but I fell in love with her. We got married and having her one support, but two, like there's a level of, I don't know, push I get in a way from, from her. Not that I didn't have a lot of it internally, but being able to realize potential and realize like a frame of mind that is different that she came from that has really helped me in a lot of ways. And then the support with all the stuff that I do, like it's invaluable. Invaluable. That's powerful, man. And that goes into a couple of your other ones where it's proximity, mindset, mentorship, passion, things we talk about on the Action Academy all the time. Invest in yourself, acquiring new skills, perspectives, knowledge, have realistic goals and expectations. Oh, I want to hit on this one. I have a contrarian take. I don't disagree with you, but I always say have realistic goals and expectations and then like comma and. <laughs> so I'm yeah. curious about your perspective there. No, I, there's nothing wrong with reaching for the stars. And I think you want to push yourself for sure. The comment I make about that is I've had people at different times that I've hired, they're just getting out of college and they're maybe two years in and they're expecting to make- want to be a millionaire. Know, C- yeah, they're expecting to make like C-suite money or something. And sometimes that, or let's just say you have a deal and you're always penciling that all of it, everything's going to go perfectly. And that's yeah. what you're like riding on. It's like, all right, let's settle down here. Let's have realistic goals, expectations, stuff that pushes us that we can reach, but not so far-fetched that every single thing that you do, people look at you like you haven't ever accomplished anything that like you've really thrown out there like that. <laughs> like not all of us, I love Elon Musk. I love Jeff. Not all of us are going to reach that level and that's okay. But yeah. Have you heard of negative self-visualization? Yeah. Yeah. So I ironically do that. It's a bit masochistic, but it's just for people listening when I was, so I'll use this, it's the perfect example. So when I was in sales, right? So when we talk about have realistic goals and expectations, it's do 10% better than you've done before. So that was your frame of reference. You know, what's possible do 10% more. It's kind of like adding an extra five pound weight to your bench press at the gym. That's how most people go and progress through things. I was my first kind of reality altering goal was I was like, I want to hit top of the company in my first year, which is like exactly what you say. You have these different levels of beginner. So it's like you have the enthusiastic beginner and then you go to the valley of despair when you realize it's uninformed optimism, informed pessimism, and you go in the Mm -hmm. valley of despair and then you keep going through. It's the life cycle of emotional change. So I start off and then I was just like, I'm going to visualize every single person telling me no, every single deal going south. So that when that happens to me, I know that's going to happen. And I know that I'm only like 80 no's away from a yes, or then I get better. And then it's only 20 no's away from a yes. And then it's only 10 no's away from a yes. And that's how I shifted my mind. And then I hit the goal. And then I was like, whoa, (laughs) okay, what is reality anymore? And then a coach asked me a question one time and phrased something to me that completely changed my life. And it's something that I do to this day. And it just keeps seeming to work over and over again. And I've noticed it as a recurring theme is asking bigger questions. So 
I agree with setting realistic goals to a degree, but he was, my goal was to leave my corporate job in five years. And that was when I already had my real estate. And he was like, how would we do it in six months? And I was just like, what? <laughs> it's impossible. There's no way we could do that in six months. Mm-hmm. And then he was like, but how would you? And then I was all of a sudden my brain started popping yeah. out ideas that I didn't have before. And then I ended up pulling it off. And I was yep. just like, holy crap. And so I think that the two, if I were to punctuate this with two takeaways for the audience, so it's just not me and Jace rambling here. If I were to punctuate this, I'd say the two takeaways would be to when it comes to having realistic goals and expectations, I would almost rephrase that to have massive goals and shoot for the stars, but have realistic expectation for what work it takes to get there and fall in love with the process. Because it's almost always going to be 10 times to 100 times harder than you think it will be, but it's worth it. And if you fall in love with the process and your emotions aren't tied to the end result, and your emotions are tied to making the free throws, making the layups, doing like the blocking and tackling, then the end result takes care of itself. And then the second point to punctuate that would be the power of proximity. Because when you, and that was the reason that I asked that question before about you, about the guys like they did it on their own, they did the corporate thing. I have found over and over again, the people that are around that one mentor or that one coach or that one rich dad versus the poor dad, that one community that takes them under their arm, like that is the fastest accelerant for success. I'm curious about your perspective on that. No, I would 100% agree. My dad, he's, I love my dad to death, but he's more of a risk adverse mindset in, in a lot of ways. And he's done phenomenal. He's multimillionaire at this point. But one of the, one of the things he told me when I was younger is I thought I was going to go into medicine. In fact, I did all my prereqs before I, in my freshman year of college, before I went on a church mission. When I came back, I, I completely diverted from that path. But he told me, he's like, study business. And then if you want to learn business, go to Texas. And I was born in Texas, but I never really had visited or spent much time there. But when my parents were here in Texas, which is where I live now, but they were in Houston. And my dad said, there's no place that I've been in the country that I thought people knew and did business well than Texas. So he gave me that advice, which was, I always just filed away. And then I took it and it came to Texas didn't know hardly anybody. And it's been one of the best. It's not that there's not business in other states, but having the proximity to the, some of the people that I've had, mentors and things, people that I've been able to rub shoulders with in, in Texas has been absolutely invaluable. And on the inverse of that, think about all of the limiting and negative patterns that we've reinforced and embraced from our parents over the years just as powerful as that, hey, if you want to do business, go to Texas. Also, all these people that are listening, I think we all can think back to a parent or a close family member or a close friend telling us the reason that things wouldn't work from their perspective. And we internalize that. Think of things like rich people are greedy. Rich people are jerks. The love of money is the root of all evil all these different things like you're not good enough to make it. That's for other people, not for us. Those beliefs are implanted just as common, if not more commonly than the one that you just said. And that's, I think, an important takeaway there is we get these beliefs from our family and that's where it all begins. That's where our entire journey begins. That's why you have some people with such a head start 
they're starting at the 30-yard line because their family was maybe entrepreneurial. And they said, hey, if you want to learn business, go to Texas. Or if you like, you could do anything that you set your mind to if you work hard enough and stuff like that, as opposed to a lot of other families. Like I've been on the both sides of it. My my mom told me how dumb it was to buy real estate when I first started buying real estate. My entire family, when I first spent $3,500, basically five grand to go to a weekend trip for GoBundance back in 2019, they were like, that's a scam. Like They're going to steal your money. <laughs> and I was over here, no, like this is the opportunity to change my life. And looking back at it as an inflection point, that was the moment that changed my life. And that first rental property was the moment that changed my life. So it was both times going directly against what my family's beliefs were at the time. And now they, they have since changed throughout mm-hmm. time as we've gone on our journeys. What are your perspectives on that limiting beliefs in general? Yeah, I never realized how much the things that you learn or don't learn as a child and and in your early years really form you. And growing up in the household I did, like my dad was a little bit more risk adverse. I grew up with, I had to go through that and not change my mindset, but really reframe a lot of the things that I thought related to business risk-taking. And that took a little while. It took probably four or five years for me to go through that. One of the first places I bought this condo for 120 grand. Seems like pennies, right? In Dallas, Texas. And my dad was so nervous about it because there was some... And we did have some roof problems. And at the end of the day, I was glad I sold it just because I think the HOA was going to have a bunch of issues on their hand. But I look back and... Like my dad was so nervous for me at that time. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, this is 120 grand. This thing, like, it can't go to zero. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think maybe it can, but it's like a structure and it's a nice place. I had a great view out the back, right? I had a little creek running through the back of the yard. I'd get on the patio is like one of the best views you could have in a flat, flat city like Dallas. And I took that, bought that thing for 120 and I ended up selling, I think, for 180 a couple years later. And that that sale, that purchase and sale, when I was still yeah. working essentially in corporate world, really springboarded a lot of the stuff that I was able to do after. So had I not taken, quote unquote, a risk there, which I didn't think it was because my house payment was going to be less than what my rent was. So to me, I was like, this is cheaper. You know, you're taking on a mortgage. You don't know if you're going to be in a city and all this kind of stuff that goes with it. And sure, timing helped me. But yeah, those things I had to work through in my 20s, early 20s, mid 20s to reframe a lot of the things that that I learned as a child. And it wasn't no fault to my parents or anybody I was surrounded with. It just was, that's how they were wired. And at the end of the day, we're wired a little bit differently. It's just so wild. Another key point there as we wrap up here was you were talking about that, like building skills, like skill sets. I think that's the one thing that people don't focus on enough. I think people are focused like an idea. Let me rephrase this. An idea that I had that has since changed from the beginning of my wealth building journey was to learn the skill, learn the skill of investing, to invest. Like I'm going to learn how to invest in real estate, buy the house hacks, do the co-living, do all this different stuff. And that was my first original skill that I was focused on. Because I had already focused on building, I already put my 10,000 hours into building this skill of sales. So I was already making a quarter million dollars a year in my sales job. So it's like, I'd already done that thing. And so if I were to go back and give advice to 
somebody that's just graduating college because now it's like I'm 10 years out of high school. Yeah. So I've got another four years. You're still a young years buck, buddy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's even like from high school, I've got a lot of people that reach out to me and they say, hey, I'm graduating college or I'm still in college. What do I do? And I always tell them like, put all of your time, energy, and effort into building up rare and valuable skills. I'm like, really hone in on your skills because your skills, your jobs will come and go. Your businesses will come and go, but your skill sets never leave. So it's just, it's funny because I remember how much effort it took me to get to my first 100 grand in a year. And that was everything to me. It took me like three years to figure out how to make 100 grand in a year. Then I figured out how to make 100 grand in six months. And then I figured out how to make 100 grand in two months. And then I almost made 100 grand in one month. And I was just like, it's always been there. It's just like you have to put your reps in to be able to get to that point. And it's just been fun. Like every single step of the journey, it's been like very interesting. And I would recommend to people like be willing, ready, and able to fail and just fail fast, fail forward, and don't have a fear of failure. I would say I'd rather embrace it. What would you say? Yeah, I always use the phrase that you, you never fail unless you give up. And so, and yeah. unless you really throw in the towel and just it's done, you're not failing because as you maybe don't have a succeed or you don't hit a goal, you should be still learning along the way. And so those learnings then propel you to continue to go, get your flywheel going, et cetera. And so I don't really look, I don't really frame failure unless you completely give up. Yeah. Another way I like it is a failure is only a failure if you don't learn from it. And if you do learn from it, then it was never a failure at all. It was only a lesson. I like that one too. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. A perfect. That's a perfect place to end it right on time, which me, neither of us in the beginnings of the episodes. <laughs> but Jace, man, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you and where can people listen to the podcast? Yeah. Millionaires Unveiled is the name of the podcast. And uh, yeah, I hang out there and then I'm on LinkedIn. Those are pretty much the two easiest places, but all socials. I'm millennial. So I've got all social media accounts. I just not as active on the others. Nice. All right, everyone. The podcast, the show, and the LinkedIn are going to be in the show description. Go give him a connection request. Just do not send him. Actually, no, please go send Jace the worst LinkedIn sales message you can think of. Please. <laughs> can I get so as many, many of those a day? <laughs> include as many buzzwords as humanly possible. Talk about <laughs> synergy. Talk about goals. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. But Jace, man, thank you for coming on, buddy. Thanks for having me, Brian. And with that's been Jace and Brian with the Action Academy Podcast, signing off. Hey, real quick. If you're still listening to today's episode, I'm assuming you got value from it. So I need your help specifically. My two-year vision with this show is to help over 1 million people do what they want, when they want, with who they want. And I can only do that with your help. There are two main ways that a podcast grows. One is through ratings and reviews, and the other is word of mouth. If you could please leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, as well as send this to one or two friends that you think would get value from it, we can reach the people that we're looking to reach. Thanks in advance. Talk tomorrow.